Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. We have a spectacular episode for you today. I'm so excited to get you there. But before, just a tiny bit of housekeeping. Number one, the third Women's Longevity and Resilience Retreat is almost full. So ladies, if you've been hearing about this and thinking to yourself, should I or shouldn't I? You know what? Just book a call. Let's chat and let's see if this is right for you. To do that, just go to natnidham.com and click on the retreat link at the top of the page and you can book a quick call with me and Dasha and let's see if this is something that you would get benefit from. I can tell you that it is an amazing opportunity to reboot and recharge before the holidays and fill your bucket with all kinds of incredible knowledge about peptides and biohacking and nutrition and supplementation. We do a genetic report. We do your biological age report. We have a one-on-one sit down. You get body treatments. We do walks on the beach. Like really, it could not possibly have packed more goodness into that short, that five-day period. So check it out. If this is even remotely interesting, you definitely want to go and book a call. Second thing is the Mighty Networks community. It's a private community. It's off Facebook. I'm in there all the time. I do live Q&As in there. I have podcast guests come in, do live expert Q&As. I release podcasts early to that group. We have lots of amazing stuff going on. And like I said, it's away from the prying eyes and ears of those who might want to listen in on us. It's a great community. And if you join as an annual member, you get immediate access included to my peptide crash course that's not even available out in the world yet. So you get advanced access. Okay. Number three, please remember that if you enjoy this podcast and you get value from it and you know anybody else who would get value from it, please share it out with your friends and with your community. And if the episode inspires you, then please do leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to it on, because this is what allows the podcast to rise up the ranks. And also it allows me more importantly to get more amazing guests for you guys. Okay. Now let's jump in. Before we, I tell you about the episode, I want to talk to you a little bit about mitochondria. I want to talk about the fact that it is not very well known that many experts suggest that diseases often originate from mitochondrial dysfunction. And to promote longevity, it is crucial for us to eliminate these damaged mitochondria from our bodies because that's what's going to help to slow down the aging process and enable our bodies to make new, beautiful, more functional mitochondria. With MitoPure's urolithin A supplement, which is a supplement that I love, improving mitochondrial function has become easier than ever. We, By enhancing mitochondrial function, you can experience improved energy levels, reduced inflammation, a slower aging process, and healthier mitochondria can help to protect against disease. It actually took 10 years of research to bring this potent product to market, and I'm personally so glad that it did because it really works. MitoPure offers three convenient ways to incorporate it, the, the recommended daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A into your routine. Number one is a delicious vanilla protein powder. If you've been following me for a while, you know this is my favorite. It combines the benefits of muscle building whey protein with the cellular energy support of urolithin A in this delicious vanilla flavor. 
Number two is a berry powder or a ginger powder. The ginger has got a little bit of a kick to it. I love it in yogurt. You add the powder to your smoothies or any other beverage of choice or your yogurt like me for a seamless way to enjoy the benefits of your lithin A. And number three are soft gels. And so for people who are always on the go, certainly when I'm traveling, I always bring my soft gels with me because they're the easiest way to take my supplement. So for those of you who can't decide which form to choose, I really recommend checking out the starter pack. It gives you a little bit of everything so you can try it all out. Now, Timeline is offering 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Just go to TimelineNutrition.com forward slash Nat10 and use code Nat10 to get 10% off your order. Again, that's TimelineNutrition.com slash Nat10. All right, now let's talk about this episode a little bit. We're talking about ketamine therapy, and this is an incredible topic I've been wanting to talk about for so long, and it took me a while to find the right person, but boy, did I ever. So the rise of ketamine therapy has been a hot topic in the world of medicine. For decades, ketamine's been used as an anesthetic in surgery and as a pain reliever. However, in recent years, it's gained attention as a potential treatment for depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other mental health disorders. As the use of ketamine therapy continues to grow, more and more patients are finding relief from their mental health issues, as well as an improved overall quality of life. And today I'm joined by none other than Caleb Greer. Now you may, you may know Caleb Greer from our previous podcast on hormone balancing, on semaglutide, on terzepatide. But you know, one of the reasons why I'm so amazed by Caleb Greer and why I love him so much as a practitioner is he's the full package. And today we're diving into the world of ketamine therapy. We cover how exactly ketamine works and what people feel when using ketamine. Plus, we talk about how it can be used as an effective treatment for mental health issues. We also discuss the long-term effects of ketamine, how it might help to inhibit pain, and the difference between ketamine and other well-known psychedelics. Now, Caleb Greer is the founder of Design Health. In pursuit of becoming a well-rounded practitioner, Caleb studies all facets of human physiology and applies his understanding to the realms of mental and physical health. Caleb is a family nurse practitioner, and his knowledge and understanding of stuff is just massive. So in his short term time in practice, and it's not that short, actually, it's a few years now, Caleb has helped over a thousand individuals reintroduce and optimize function through his multidisciplinary approach that integrates neurology, psychology, epigenetics, nutrition, biomechanics, and medicine. And guys, I can tell you that I have sent many people to Caleb and they are always blown away by the care that they get. To connect with Caleb, you can go to designhealth.org and to spell design, it's D-A-S-E-I-N health.org, or he's got a great Instagram channel, which is Design Health. Once again, D-A-S-E-I-N health. Okay, one last thing before we jump into the episode, I want to talk to you about this incredible device that I've recently, well, in the last couple of months started to use. If you're anything like me, you may find it challenging to commit to a regular meditation practice. So many people want to meditate, but they just can't. The thing is that meditation offers incredible benefits like a reduction in stress, improved deep sleep, as well as a balanced nervous system. Now, if you struggle to meditate, but you're ready to start reaping these benefits, you have got to check out Sensate. Sensate is an innovative infrasound resonance device that when used in conjunction with the sessions provided in the Sensate companion app, 
can help to reduce stress and improve your overall well-being. What the device does, it's like it's the palm of your hand. It's black. It looks like a large black pebble and you place it on your chest. And the device emits infrasonic sound waves that synchronize with the app soundscapes, delivering deep relaxation within the, the 10 to 30 minute sessions. Sensate not only helps to release immediate stress and anxiety, but it also helps to build long-term stress resilience. It improves heart rate variability and enhances the quality of your sleep. For me personally, Sensate has been a complete game changer for my sleep. I use it as I'm falling asleep at night. I put that beautiful pebble on my chest. I put my um, headphones on. I play the track and it it always shows up with better HRV and sleep scores in the morning. It's it's quite remarkable, actually. So take a step towards improving your overall well-being and stress levels and use code NAT at GetSensate.com or just go to GetSensate.com forward slash NAT. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Caleb Greer, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to my humble abode. To your humble abode. So guys, we I happen to be in Austin and... Caleb and I were just saying, hey, let's record an episode because we're in person. So here we are at Days in Health. You guys probably know Caleb from one of the many other episodes we've done together. Most recently was December 2022. One of the most downloaded episodes mm-hmm. on Terzepatide. Funny how that works. December, Christmas time, weight loss. It's going to be big. New year, new me. And the one before that was semaglutide in January. Mm-hmm. So anyway, today we are talking. So welcome to the show. Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to, be, good to be back. Yeah. Here. Today we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about ketamine therapy, which is, um, which is a hot topic these days, right? All of these different therapies, uh, whether it's psychedelics or plant medicines, many of which are psychedelic, as the world is, even the conventional world is starting to open to the possibility mm-hmm. of these therapies, I think it's so interesting to shine a light on them because they seem to be able to, I was going to say they move the needle, but they help people to really get out of their own way. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what the heck ketamine is and why we should think about it. Yeah. uh, No, great intro. Um, Yeah. I think the utility of these substances, I mean, they've, they've been used in recreational society for a very long time. And so I think you know, as the psychedelic renaissance has kind of come full circle, um, as people have kind of realized that it's not just how they impact um, society at large and, and really kind of looking back at the reason that they were pulled out of um, circulation being this kind of war on drugs and, and the whole anti-peace movement with with um, Nixon and, and even Reagan. So the, the idea that drugs can be utilized for therapeutic purposes outside of the pharmaceutical realm and utilizing either the plant-based medicines or the synthetic medicines like MDMA and, and ketamine is really kind of a newer thing, even though I say new, it's 20 years you know, in, in the making. Mm. But where ketamine is used, at least clinically now, has been mostly in the field of mental health, so looking at PTSD and chronic pain and depression. But even you know, beside that, it's, it's something that still kind of allows for even normal people, even high-functioning people to get out of their own way in the context of increasing openness, right? So from a trait perspective in personality, 
you know, especially entrepreneurs and, um, and and business owners that have been kind of doing the same thing for a long time, and they kind of either get um, bored with what they're doing, they kind of need a fresh look at how to either change perspective or you're to again just kind of bring novelty back into their mental space and it can be used in that context too so what we kind of use as a nootropic uh, formulation with with ketamine combined with other things to enhance neuroplasticity and kind of drive better cognition and and better interactions with um, clients that they they might have and explore okay so that brings up a question so how is it used right so basically do you just so it's administered by iv yeah, so that- yeah, so routes administration, there's there's quite a few. I mean there's there's IV, there's intramuscular, there's oral, there's rectal, and you know, obviously they can um any combination of all three of those. I mean four of those. So so really and intranasal. That's actually a so there's a five common. intranasal. And so why would you so obviously the IV and the intramuscular it's there's there's a needle involved. So there's mm-hmm. a bit of a barrier to entry there. Yeah. But in terms of the intranasal, the or, the oral and the rectal do you as a clinician feel that there's a, room, a a place for those over, even though you could do IV and intramuscular, is there a place for those instead of using, like, does it act differently in different, when it's administered in different ways? Yeah. So, I mean, any dose in any, or like, not any dose, but any route can get you a significant amount of dissociation. So if we use that as the spectrum of, you know, you can be lightly dissociated, like a glass of wine feel, or completely amnesic and forget everything that you did in the last 20 or 30 minutes, mm-hmm. right? So you can have that kind of spectrum with any route of administration, the dose is going to be what's different. Right. And then by proxy, the toxicity and, and effect of, of what it's going to do inside your body. So there are definitely uses outside of the clinic that can be prescribed that are helpful for all kinds of conditions, whether it's anxiety, depression, you know, helping people get off of something that's more physiologically, um, Harmful? Yeah. So something like benzodiazepines that people use on a daily or, or you know, every other as-needed basis, mm-hmm. um, you know, helping people drop clonopin or Xanax in place of, of that and use a lozenge of ketamine or something in the context that they still have to understand that, you know, people can drive on a baby Xanax, right, and just be not not completely out of it, but, you know, alert and able to still drive, especially if they've taken it for a long time. Whereas ketamine, you can't take it and drive. No. Right there's there's a difference in setting that you have to be able to kind of respect with with a dissociative. So in that spectrum, like you you have to as a clinician obviously be aware that look you got to tell people you can't use this in the same setting that you use a classic anti anxiety. It's going to be something where people take it before bed if they can't sleep because they've got a high level of anxiety or you know if there's you know bed trauma or something like that you know people have a difficulty falling asleep even. On the other side of that, you know, sometimes people have intense panic in office settings or at work. And so if they can take, you know, a 20 or 30 minute break, like where they would go smoke a cigarette or go like take a, a chill um, pill, mm-hmm. um, they can have an intranasal squirt of a low dose of ketamine and just kind of level them out, not to the degree where they get dissociated, but just as a kind of edge cut. So there's definitely uses that are non you know, not in the clinic per se that can be used extra clinically from a prescriber that are effective for kind of remedying those conditions. So how hard is it to dose? Like, is this, is it very individual or is there like a form, you know what I mean? Like if you're looking at two patients and saying, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd like, you want to find that sweet spot, like you just described, that's going to be a very specific dose 
that's going to take the edge off without putting them in a state where they're in an inappropriate state for being in a public setting kind of right. thing, right? Yeah, so if, if we're kind of playing with what dose for someone to use, number one, I typically don't prescribe at-home uses until we've done uh, a series of intravenous infusions in the office. Yeah. Because um, that kind of sets the space of how to respect the level of dissociation, right? Because they're really, it's hard to get that level of, of, of depth outside of an IV within a short period of time that they're going to have, right? So if, if I gave them various different doses to use at home, it might take them a week to kind of figure out what dose they're going to use kind of in this situation, in this situation, you know, they're kind of capped off, they're not going anywhere, they just kind of lay in bed and kind of have either for pain or for, again, you know, depression or, or what it might be. After they have the experience with the IV, I can kind of tell them, okay, this is what you experienced with the IV. We're not going for that. We're mm-hmm. kind of going for what we did maybe in our first intravenous infusion where it's very um, conversational. You weren't too deep to actually have a conversation, remember it. That's kind of what they're going for at home, mm-hmm. right? So we don't want them to have um, an experience at home where they freak out their partner or their kids or something else. Or, you know, God forbid they have kids, they wake up in the middle of the night and they need something from their parents and, you know, not mom or dad's yeah. kind of out to lunch. Um, so again, using that as a reference frame for how to expect what level of dissociation to have at home is a super helpful thing. Now, if people don't go that route, then we start with a very low dose and say, give it an hour and see from zero to 10, what was your level of dissociation? Kind of journal that, kind of figure it out, email me, let me know. And then we just kind of go on a, on a case by case. Really feel your way. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So, so let's, so to people who don't know anything about ketamine, what does that mean, dissociative? Like, how does it work? How does it help? Like, how does something help for pain and for anxiety and for depression? Like, what's the, what's kind of the mechanism and or basically what do people feel? Do they feel like they're drunk? Do they feel like they're high? When you say disassociative, what does that mean exactly? So mostly it means physical, so kind of a dissociation from your body. Um most people actually experience a greater dream-like experience. So it's almost like a lucid dream. So it's mm-hmm. very it's very visual inside of your, your head, but not outside. So you can have a super high dose. It's not psychedelic or serotonergic in the sense like LSD or like psilocybin. The walls are going to melt. Or, Nothing's yeah. moving outside of the world. Like yeah. you might have some nystagmus, so the world's going to be kind of moving to some degree, um, but no visual alterations in perception. Now, if you close your eyes, you're going to have a, a different world, right? So, so very, you know, kaleidoscopy or even kind of abstract or linear. There's just a lot of different visual representations that you're going to get when your eyes are closed. Um, and part of that is because, at least on a um, electrical standpoint, mm-hmm. ketamine increases what we call this gamma um, range of, of frequency, and that's kind of associated with higher level thought processes and activity and just kind of solving problems. And so there's actually a lot of activity happening in the brain, even though you're kind of disconnected from your body, so to speak. Okay. So as a dissociative, what it does is kind of cut you off from the outside world mm-hmm. and puts you way, way internal. So it's a very highly introspective therapy, um, which is why, you know, people kind of get this baby deer like effect or, you know, they just kind of lose the ability to feel the proprioceptive cues coming from their body. And most of that happens because of, the inhibition of a lot of the excitatory neurotransmission. So all this stuff that are coming from the bottom up to kind of register where you are in space and your joint position sense, that's just kind of 
knocked out. So then will the person be walking around like they're drunk kind of thing? Like, do they yes. lose coordination yes. and, and fluidity of movement? So, so then in terms of pain, does it actually affect pain or does it affect your caring of the, your perception of the pain? Both. So it's, it's, no, it's anti-nociceptive. So in that sense, like it actually blocks the in, incoming Signals. nociception that is registered as pain. So yeah. pain is the, the actual conscious awareness of the sensory aspect, mm-hmm. whereas the sensory aspect can still come up without your cognizant recognition of it. So it blocks your cognitive representation of what the pain is. Interesting. And it also reduces, you know, in the areas of the brain that kind of compute what that pain is like, yeah. like the actual qualia of the pain, yeah. it reduces that sharpness. So it can kind of dull the actual experience of the pain, even though they might have it, it's not as potent. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really register as a signal. So it kind of resets the gain, which is where they use it for chronic pain. Because with chronic pain, it's not that the stimulus is more or less painful than it otherwise would have been. It's still the same signal, but it gets registered as, let's say, five units of pain instead of one. Yeah, so it almost gets amplified in the brain, Correct. Yeah, so the more you have the pain, the better you get at perceiving the pain. And then you get this allodynia, which is basically the, the bastardization of that signal to be worse. Right. And so that's that central desensitization or central sensitization that can get kind of retarded by the ketamine. Yeah. And so for, for people with that kind of pain, it doesn't, does it have lasting effects outside the therapies? Like sometimes, or like if you break that cycle, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. not to say that pain is in someone's head, but pain is in someone's oh, head. Absolutely. Like you can register, you can yeah. visually see it in certain types of brain imaging. You can see where the pain is. And I know that I've read and learned that in some cases, if you can, you can, if you can actually shrink that radius, like there's treatments, brain treatments that mm-hmm. in some cases can deal with chronic pain because it becomes like a misfiring in the brain of, of neurons. Yeah. Well, there's also different mapping to the areas of the pain that you're getting it from. Mm-hmm. So like if you have interoceptive maps of, let's say your leg, for example, and it's in the insula or the anterior cingulate, and you have this disrepresentation of the size of where that pain is coming from, the unmyelinated pain fibers that represent that that signal, they're very slow, which is, you know, if you kind of think about running from your pain or you rub your pain after you hit your knee or something, that yeah. affrontation of the larger fibers inhibits the, the gating of the pain that goes to the cortex. So in that sense, with, with the ketamine blocking that area, you can also improve, and this is where stimulators and stuff like that and the spinal cord and the deep brain stimulators can help inhibit the pain perception by increasing the the sensory overall from from other incoming yeah deep touch you know fine touch vibrate you know vibration proprioception like all those other sensory modalities that have a larger fiber tract and, and better representation to aid again in remapping the actual cortical representation of the pain. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, right? I mean, that's such when you really think about what pain is, mm-hmm. it's it's about signals. It's not about a thing. Yeah. It's it's actually, it's really fascinating, which I'm sure provides no end of frustration to people that deal with chronic pain. Yeah. In the sense that it's an electrical signal and you're like, it's not like somebody's stomping on my foot here. Well, I mean, so it's electrical. It's also, so there's chemical and electrical components of, of the pain, right? Now, going back to the question on, you know, how long it is helpful for. Yeah. Really in in the spectrum of using ketamine for chronic pain, the only place I've really seen it work long-term is, is what's called like a ketamine coma. 
So people with chronic pain will go inpatient into a hospital system that, that covers this kind of therapy, and it actually is reimbursable through insurance. But they'll be in the hospital for four or five days under a dissociative coma yeah. to really give the brain a break from sensory perception of, of pain in mm-hmm. order to remap and you know kind of actually get the plasticity around the pain. So they have a certain week, basically, without feeling pain. And then right. they and actually And then when they come pain. out of it, sometimes does that break that mm-hmm. cycle? Wow. Yeah, so for like it's phantom really pain and yeah. then chronic, yeah, neuropathic pain. Now, obviously with the chronic pain syndromes too, like there's changes in mitochondria that happen long-term that can also make an impact for the local, you know, sensitivity to pain in the areas too that then magnify when it goes up top. Uh, when we did our initial kind of anti-pain uh, programming, we, we did it with a combination of different things, right? So we tackled pain on kind of four different levels and, and ketamine and lidocaine were at, kind of at the end of it to, mm-hmm. to reduce the central sensitization. But you got to get the inflammatory stuff out of the way. You've got to get the structural things out of the way. You know, someone has a, a jacked up back with, you know, disc like degeneration and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to get rid of that stuff first. So structurally and anatomically, you can't forget that those are going to be generators. Um, but to the degree that you're going to have the pain coming at a lesser volume essentially mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. people still walk away and they're very happy with with that i mean it's, at least it's more tolerable and they can do more things yeah okay well, that's really okay so what are the so let's talk about the other so with the pain then depression anxiety substance breaking substance abuse mm-hmm. that kind of thing are those the main buckets? What about, like, I think PTSD falls in there somewhere? Yeah, so any any condition where either there's a, an aberrant error signaling process, so, you know, with depression and anxiety, just being unable to kind of adapt how you perceive kind of error signals in the way that you think, you know, whether it's about yourself or other people or just, you know, the uncertainty in the environment, mm-hmm. right? So it can really help with the underlying programs that are run in the brain, especially the subcortical systems that kind of tell you what to pay attention to without you actually knowing what you're supposed to pay attention to. Hmm. But that's also where therapy and guiding of these sessions with the understanding of kind of how someone grew up, what are the different factors that played a role with their unconscious kind of laying down of these belief systems and and, and values. But even with kind of adult onset PTSD or um, kind of later life generated things, the more someone actually has a conscious recollection of what they're trying to go after, the more you can dissolve the connection to it from the ego Interesting. and really get after it from an objective point of view. So again, if someone can look at what happened to them as if it happened to someone else that they cared about or something else like that, then they can have a different approach to actually tackle the issue because it's not them. So they don't have the attachment to it. Mm. They don't have the desire for vindication for whoever did it to them. And really kind of walking through the whole therapeutic scheme as they would in talk therapy, but under dissociation is just that much more powerful. So yeah, so you break up the story more, like with, you don't have the resistance to breaking down the story. So really the, the skill of the practitioner comes into play here. Like you need someone who knows like it's almost like you're inviting someone into your brain to kind of yes. remodel things. So you really yeah. have there has to be a huge amount of trust in the practitioner. And that is where there's somewhat of an ethical dilemma because, you know, some people will say that doing therapy during a dissociative event is actually kind of, you know, it can be dangerous to some degree because you can either plant ideas or you can have more of an impact than you might otherwise want in in terms of that. But I mean, number one, I haven't seen that personally speaking, you know, as far as kind of people still having and owning the, the experience. 
Um, but that is something to consider, especially if you're just walking up the street into a clinic and, right. and kind of not knowing what you're doing. Like my, my clients obviously have a different relationship um, with, with me. So it's, it's built in a different manner. Yeah. No, but that's, that's a, I just think that's a really interesting aspect, right? Because yeah. I mean, any kind of therapy, you, you need to have trust in the, in your, in your practitioner. Yeah. But in this case, it's like your defenses are down. Right, like the wall. The, the, well, and if you don't have there. trust, and there is that issue, right? So I always tell people, even if we've had a relationship for like a year clinically, and then now we're just getting into this, this is where the IV is super substantial because you can always dose the IV based on the drip rate mm-hmm. and control the depth of experience. So if someone mm-hmm. has an anxiety about losing control, which are most people that do it, <clears throat> they feel I've very comforted. <laughs> They feel very comforted by the fact that they are always kind of in control of yeah. where they are in the experience. So it's kind of up to them if they want to go deeper or if they want to stay where they're at. If they're doing, because honestly, there's not really a need to just go balls deep in the K hole. Right. Like most of the work is done in that conversational agility mm-hmm. where people can feel emotion, where they can talk about it, but in a way that's not tied to their default mode. So I mean, again, that's the, one of the benefits of doing IV over, say, IM. Um, and even more right, so because I am, the, it's in. That's it. You're yeah. kind of stuck with the dose. That's really interesting. Okay, so that's like anxiety. I mean, so I guess anxiety, depression. Yeah, so the buckets, like, right? So what mental, about OCD? mental like, health. Yeah. So OCD and bipolar are kind of difficult because of the the, the kind of either manic side of, of bipolar and the tendency to just stick on a path with OCD, right? Mm-hmm. So because of the glutamate activity in OCD, increasing glutamate transmission with at least the lower dose of ketamine can kind of make things almost worse, right? So I wouldn't, I probably would stay away from both of those conditions with ketamine, at least until there's a better understanding of how that individual tolerates the uh, the therapy. Um, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, is actually a a better idea for OCD across the board. Um, So yeah, there's the mental health bucket, so the negative emotional kind of spectrum, even with rage and, you know, fear, right? So it's not just depression and grief or sadness. So you're really just getting to bottom. Like you're getting to the root, like trying to understand what's driving. Yes, you get to the automatized predictions that the brain levies in early life that you don't know why you have. Right. Right. So you only behave in a manner that's conducive to survival, right? Mm -hmm. The coping strategies that were laid down to help you kind of get through your early years. Yeah that you don't have conscious recollection of, right? So right. It's, it's pre-explicit memory formation. Yeah, got it. That's really interesting. So Buckets. So, yeah. so you got, got the it. mental health bucket, you've got the performance enhancement bucket. So, right, so performance enhancement. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so again, so people get in their way. Like if, if there is a goal or if there's, you know, it's, it's a brainstorming tool. It's, it's one of the greatest brainstorming tools ever because you get out of your own way. You don't mm-hmm. criticize the idea. So anything that kind of has the ability to just be open is on the table to then, you know, you have, it's best to have somebody with you to kind of collect your ideas. And then when you kind of come out of the experience, you not only have the kind of foundations of ideas where you can, you know, pick and choose, kind of separate wheat from chaff, but you might have an idea that was crappy, but was there was something in there that you can extract and then develop, but you never would have had it because of your own self-critique. So people that are very successful usually have a very high level of either, you know, kind of 
there's a loathing thing in there, but if they are overly critical of their own ideas or they're held to a higher standard in general, right? If they if they're used to a kind of product that is just high level, kind of perfect all the time, right. they're more likely to discard of the ones that could have potential, but they just That's toss them work. aside. That's not work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they can kind of be on their own side in developing ideas at that point. And another area of performance enhancement again is is helping people understand that there is sort of a transcendent and spiritual aspect of being in general right so a lot of people kind of get stuck in meaning and purpose crises because they don't have something that's either going to be around after they die or they have these existential crises and they've never really had the quote-unquote religious or transcendent or transcendent experience either from you know, church camps or anything like that, where, you know, some of, um, some of the people do have those experiences. So what these drugs can do is open up the potential to actually see, oh, this is what those people are talking about when they have this fundamental sense of belonging that's mm-hmm. irrespective of your contribution to society. It's like, we are all on the same spectrum of, of humanity. We have different levels of that expression, but at the fundamental you know level, we are all the same in yeah. some sense, right? Yeah. We're all part of the same collective unconscious. We all have this universal sense of belonging and people just lose sight of that. Yeah. That's really interesting. And so do you do that kind of work with high performers mm-hmm. as well? Interesting. Okay. So I've got, I mean, many, many more questions. How long should people use ketamine? And I'm, I'm going to guess it depends. Uh, yeah, it certainly wildly. depends. I mean, but is there such a thing as too much? Is it a one and done kind of thing, or is it the kind of thing that you need to repeat? I mean, I'm, I can answer that myself, but why yeah. don't you tell us clinically? For you know, I mean, it's, it really depends. If someone is used to kind of having a tool all the time be available, mm-hmm. you know, the best example is again the people that have a daily benzodiazepine just kind of on board all the time to to help with either the thought of having a panic attack, just having something on hand helps them, even if it's a placebo at that point. Yeah. Um, so it's something that I give as needed, like to, they have it on hand as needed. I mean, obviously we're tracking, you know, how many, how much they're using over time, but it really can be a substantial tool for long-term use after you've kind of gotten tachyphylactic. So there's a certain dose that they'll get to where they don't feel a dissociation anymore, but they do get the kind of mood leveling effect. They get oh, they're kind of, you know, especially for my, my, my males who have more of a rage tendency, they kind of get angry quicker. That's like, that's their depressive tendency is to actually just get aggressive and be right. you know, angry. So it really helps them kind of get a feel for, okay, again, just like the ketamine coma, they have a gradual exposure to what it's like to not be angry or upset. Mm-hmm. then they can kind of probe it why they might be feeling more angry and upset in different circumstances, especially when it's more rare. So it kind of closes the loop, and especially if we've done the IV, exposing part of the reasons why they do what they do mm-hmm. can really help them get through events. So in, in some circumstances, people will have it for when they just feel overwhelmed by stress, yeah. and then the response to stress is to get upset or to blame or to do those kinds of things. In the same strategies that we use benzodiazepines in my practice is to calm down, but not forget that you took that for a certain reason. Mm-hmm. So after they've kind of regulated themselves, they'll go back and journal and say, okay, what were the proximal triggers to me feeling that way? And can I explore a little bit deeper now that I feel calm? 
And now that I have a purpose to go back and actually look at it and, you know, do the self-exploration. Yeah. So some people have that for years, right? They'll, and they'll have it as a tool to kind of keep their marriage together, to keep their kids from, you know, being traumatized, essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of people out there that struggle with these kinds of things that you just would never know. Yeah. In terms of how long someone would do like an IV therapy course, you know, again, if you have to do, unless someone is really, you know, struggling with, with life, honestly, four to six of them in kind of a, a series, you know, I kind of go one a week for four weeks or one every other week because they do a lot of work in the meantime. And that's kind of where yeah. when they come back and we integrate, we say, okay, how, how was going back to the real world for two weeks? You know, where did you see yourself um, make improvements? Mm-hmm. Was there a quicker return to kind of realizing what, what was making you upset? And, and people are funny because we'll get, you know, two weeks or, or three weeks down the road and like, yeah, you know, I don't, I still don't feel like I'm making progress. And, and then we take a look at kind of what they journaled before. And then we look at what they journal now and they're like, oh, no, I, I'm actually coming back to my issue twice as fast as I was before, right? I can circle back around and realize, oh, I was wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me go figure out why I, you know, burst out there, why I withdrew and, and mm-hmm. didn't talk. Like, everybody has different um, coping strategies. But again, you know, six infusions is typically enough to really make substantial improvement. And then we still layer on top of that, you know, frequent visits to integrate all the new stuff. And they're, they're, they still journal, they, they practice their meditation, they, they start behaving or they start integrating behaviors that are better for their mental well-being and they take more of a self-focus. Um, um, and they, they really take the opportunity to care for themselves as if they were someone else they were caring for. Because most people, especially the women that come in, they have this burnout of desire to care for everyone else mm-hmm. and not take the same care for themselves. Yeah. And so when they show up, that's usually one of the things we talk about is in order for you to ultimately keep caring for other people, you, you've got to turn the, the locus of attention back on, on yourself. So again, going back to kind of the, the gauge six to you know four to six to eight sessions kind of spread over a three-month period yeah is generally enough now i also have other tools that help out you know the tms and you know the red lights the ice bath all those different tools kind of add on top as a whole mental health program not only to care for yourself because you're doing all these things Mm -hmm. and that pays dividends just in and of itself you mean like in the bucket of Mm self-care yeah i'm doing things for me yeah exactly and then as they start to change in their environment like their home life their work life you know, their social lives, they start to get this feedback that says, hey, what you're doing has you on the right track. Mm-hmm. Like you're starting to get more of this, oh, the world is not against me anymore, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm doing things that are improving, all my relationships are improving, and it's just a feedback loop of I'm doing better. Hey folks, we interrupt this show to give you a very short and sweet message about bioregulator peptides and the other incredible supplements that you can find at profound-health.com. Profound Health is at the cutting edge of supplementation and they carry all of the Cavinson oral peptides, bioregulator peptides that are nutritional supplements and that I have been using now for a year and a half to improve my health and to reduce my biological age. In addition, Profound Health has a beautiful array of supplements all geared towards healthy aging. So check it out, profound-health.com 
And to save 15% off your first order, just use discount code longevity15. And now let's get back to the episode. It sounds super powerful. It you is. Know, I mean, it, it really like is. If I was a therapist right now listening to this, I'd be like, because, you know, it's as a therapist, you're hitting walls all the time about people's self-perception, about the stories they tell, the embedded. And in this case, yeah. it's really the embedded programming, the stuff under the surface they're not even aware of. I'd be sitting on the outside feeling pretty like, I need to get myself some of this stuff. <laughs> because, yeah. it, it, frankly, just from a perspective of helping people and cutting through so much of the... Like, it's like, you know, trying to walk through a jungle where there's no path and you're bushwhacking and it's growing back faster than you can cut it away. That's a, that's a great analogy, actually. I, I like that. But yeah, I mean, most people that come and do this have been in therapy. They're pretty much their whole adult lives, if not, you know, a couple years at least. Yeah. And it's not that it hasn't worked. Like it's been good enough to actually help them realize that, one, they needed help. Mm-hmm. Two, they couldn't do it on their own. And three, that there's still problems to work out. And it's probably going to be a lifelong thing. But what the ketamine seems to do is definitely speed up the acknowledgement of those changes on a subcortical level. Because you can rationalize yourself through a lot of stuff, but when your emotions take over, the feelings will always win. Yeah. And so it's really, it's the acknowledgement of the feeling. It's finding out why the feeling is there. Mm-hmm. And it's going back to, is that a primary feeling or is it a subjugated feeling that's happening from a defensive strategy that they've, they've laid on, right? So for people that are angry, usually they're not being held against their will. Mm-hmm. Expectation of, or withdrawal of expected reward is a big one. Yeah. So when people's expectations aren't being met, that is a primary indication for rage or you know withdrawal. So figuring out where are their expectations not being met is a huge part of figuring out why they're affectively disturbed. Beyond that though, you know, if you've got someone who is, existentially confused, right? Grief, panic, sadness, dealing with issues of loss. That can also lead to secondary um, emotional disturbances, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will, you know, involve themselves with shame or guilt or, you know, other different kind of secondary tertiary emotions, which are not there to do anything but ease the emotional dysregulation from the underlying emotional state. And so digging through all of that stuff is really hard to do yeah. without removing the ego that made it and is protected. to cope. Exactly. Yeah, it's a protective mechanism. And if you don't have something to scaffold while you're tearing down pillars, then you lead to someone actually having more of a crisis because mm-hmm. they don't have their coping strategies anymore. Yeah. Like if they realize that, oh, I'm doing all these things to make up for this thing, then it makes me even more of a bad person. And I'm just never going to get through this. And it kind of makes them even more hopeless. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. acknowledging that everything you've done to this point, not your fault, yeah. take responsibility for moving forward. Yeah. But if they don't know why these things are still just sitting there and it's not to give credit to trauma or events or anything else like that, like acknowledging that those things happened and that you have to restructure the narrative in a way that is going to make you victorious Mm -hmm. and not a victim is so hard to do because most, you know, by the time they come in, they've lived that narrative for 20 or 30 years. Oh yeah. If not longer, for sure. So, yeah. Okay. So a couple of rapid fire questions, because 
I think we've been going for a while and I mean, I could keep going, but rapido, rapido, let's go. Okay, okay, go, 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 go. All right. So how does it compare to other psychedelic compounds in short? Um, I would say the most, the closest, I think, as far as NMDA antagonism is Ibogaine. So I think Ibogaine and ketamine have the closest um, relationship. Yeah. But Ibogaine is also not a classic psychedelic. Okay. So classic psychedelics go through the 5-HT2A receptor. Mm -hmm. And so LSD, psilocybin, DMT, mescaline, so and I think, uh, peyote. Yeah. Those are all classic psychedelics. So they all manipulate the serotonergic system to give, you know, massive actual psychedelic experiences. Right. Like where the external world is is yeah, is changing. So ketamine as a dissociative anesthetic has a completely different yeah. neurochemical profile, um, which is actually, I mean, there's so many, it's, it's classically an NMDA antagonist, which at higher doses it is, and mm -hmm. at lower doses, what that actually means is that you get more glutamate, not less. So you think if you're blocking the glutamate receptor that you get less glutamate, but in the prefrontal cortex, the way that it works is you block the NMDA receptors on these inner neurons mm -hmm. that then are disinhibited and release a whole lot more glutamate. So that's actually where the neuroplastic changes can occur because you have this positive feed for a loop of AMPA activation and MDA activation. So anything you do under the influence of ketamine, you will actually start to enhance those pathways, especially, you know, in the series of events, you've also got this disruption of these neural nets that get laid down around yeah. the pathways too. So it kind of breaks down these super highways into you know, county roads and then dirt roads so you can actually then reformulate on top of them yeah. and make better changes. So the neurochemistry of ketamine is super complicated and complex and is not just limited to NMDA antagonists. There's a whole lot more to the story, which is why there's such a wide range of, of effects. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It, it sounds to me like, you know, the, how we've been talking, like it just, it allows for so much more inner work without the distraction of all the outside stuff. Yeah, and that's that, the other that beautiful you get thing. From the other psychedelics. Because it enhances that internal dialogue and that that ability to communicate on a deeper level without obviously the deeper you go you can't really talk. But if you're mm -hmm. in that lighter phase, your mind is going a million miles an hour. So even if you're not consciously recollecting something, your subconscious mind can actually start processing a lot without your volitional hmm. awareness. So interesting. Especially if you go into it with the intention of working through certain problems, your brain almost kind of goes off by itself and starts fixing it. Yeah. While you're just talking and looking at stars. Super cool. Okay, I'm just going through some of these questions. There's a question here. This is a really interesting question. So this person says, you know, they're very emotional and are wondering, you know, would ketamine therapy make me go manic? Like, would it, would it blow up, blow me up? In a, it, is there a description of what emotional means? No. I have a feeling it's just someone who considers themselves to be very reactive. Right? So, so my guess is it's going to have to do with the other person you're hanging out with while you're doing your ketamine therapy. Yeah, well, part of, part of the safety net of, of the ketamine experience is to, is to feel all the feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if someone is excessively emotional, whether that's in the neurotic tendency of just to kind of feel negative emotion quicker or, you know, if something would be uh, a yellow flag to somebody else, you perceive everything as red flags. Right. It's just being more sensitive to threats in your environment. 
that generally means that someone's more emotional because they're more reactive, kind of better safe than sorry. Um, yep. Picture, you know, we see this a lot with, you know, new moms and kind of people that have um, a new thing to care for because they so start to perceive, yeah. e- you know, the existential threats of losing things becomes just more more prominent. So, you know, if someone is hyper-emotional, ketamine can be a great means to kind of parse out what are they emotional about? Again, where is that coming from? And then going back to, okay, what predictions did your brain lay down of how to get these needs met that are no longer serving you as mm-hmm. an adult person? Yeah. Um, so being overly emotional is not a contraindication or even a downside. It's really more of a sign that you, you do need to kind of work something out. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, there's a question here about sobriety. So someone who's had addiction issues, mm-hmm. so substance addiction issues, would they need to worry about ketamine therapy kind of breaking that sobriety or putting them in a place where they go back to craving? I'm going to guess not so much if you're if you're able to go down and do the work. But what what are your so, thoughts on that? And yeah. then and then the next question, which I think feeds into this, is ketamine addictive. Mm-hmm. So first question. So as far as I think it's more context mm-hmm. dependent. So if someone was an IV drug user, and yeah. then just the 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 thought of getting an IV can almost start to elicit those cravings in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, you know, but again, if you're using the therapy to actually go back and figure out, okay, what was it that they were missing that led them to start to crave the drug or the feeling that the drug gave them, you know, if they've kind of figured all that stuff out, then it's not necessarily the drug that's going to make them relapse, right? It could even make them more, proud of who they are and what mm-hmm. they've overcome. So I think it really depends on how you're doing it and in what context you're doing it you yeah. know, in. There's, I mean, I've definitely had, you know, alcoholics go through a course um, and not be successful in reducing their, their intake. It is a very similar feel to alcohol intoxication to some degree. Right. Um, so if people kind of miss that euphoria or just the, um, the escapism. Mm-hmm. It's not the best, but it's also not something they're going to be able to go home and do either, right? right? So it's not, like, I would never give someone an at-home prescription for ketamine if they're if they previously had. an addict or, or having an alcohol issue. Um, but in the same sense, like, we kind of tend to demonize drugs of abuse or alcohol or, or even nicotine, but we forget about the kind of more socially acceptable addictions, right? Gambling, sex, or shopping, even, I mean... Facebook, Instagram, all these different things that increase those phasic spikes of dopamine are going to be reduced overall, mm-hmm. you know, by by utilizing ketamine if you're aware of the problem that you're trying to reduce. Right. So, so awareness is a big piece of the puzzle. Awareness here. is huge, intentions are huge, journaling is huge. All the work that goes into being a candidate mm-hmm. is is kind of profound. So you do have to kind of prove your candidacy for the program ahead of time. Yeah, I was going to say, so you screen your people pretty carefully before mm-hmm. you go there. Yeah. And the fact that you have to do kind of an autobiography and, and all this work beforehand kind of weans out a the lot of people yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So, so this, this next question is really interesting. And I think. Boy, addiction. Addiction. Is, it, Sorry. is ketamine addictive? So, in terms of the classical, like rat lever press, do they go back for more? No. And I think, you know, as far as withdrawal from ketamine, it hasn't been, you know, well documented. I mean, there is a tachyphylaxis that people will get. You know, the higher you go, the more frequently so you, get, you go, you have to increase your dose to get yeah. the same kind of effect. Um, 
so again, you know, with anything that's euphoric and anything that has a, a dopamine burst is going to be nice, right? It's going to feel good. But to the degree of you're not very functional while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a life to live, if you have other things to do, it they don't jive well, right? right. So to the same degree, it, it can be... It can be attractive to do often. Is it addictive? I think it can be at the very, in, in some in some people, I think it can be. Yeah, so not in a physical sense. Like you're not going to have withdrawal symptoms right. if you stop, but addictive in the sense of craving for the experience over and over. I mean, we see people even in our community who get, to me, they almost get hooked on this plant medicine concept. Oh, for sure. And do it too often to the point where you mentioned integration earlier, like, the point of these things is to do it and to give yourself, your mind, your body time mm-hmm. to integrate the experience, to make sense of it, to make use of it before you kind of go back to the well. Yeah. I mean, it's almost to the same point. People can kind of fall in love with being in that psychedelic space, mm-hmm. right? Because it is novel all the time. It's new. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a profound experience and people miss that in the real world. So really it's, it's more about recognizing, okay, this is a feeling that you can have. This is available to you, right? How do you convey that into your daily life and how do you get positive emotion from what you're doing in the real world? And this is where the meaning talk kind of comes in. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's it's almost like more of an emotional addiction than mm-hmm. it is a physical addiction. Yeah, I mean, even like kava and 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 kratom, like all these yeah. things have a desirable outcome, like for your physiology and for your well being, mm-hmm. that can be bastardized in the sense that you use them too often, or like yeah. you kind of forget how else to get those surges yeah. mm, without it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So to that end, well, not even to that end, but so there's you know. In all of our communities, we have a lot of parents who are looking for ways to help their kids. And there's no doubt that there are a lot of troubled kids out there right now. There's always been troubled kids. But it seems that, you know, in the young teen and teen communities, there's a lot of turmoil. Yeah. Um, And we'd be crazy not to, to acknowledge that social media, like the last three years, everything's affected that. So we get parents sometimes, and I know I see them in my Facebook community, they will do anything to help these kids because number one, they can't handle them. And number two, you see your child suffer, you'll do anything to help them. And so the question will come, what about my teen? Like, could my teen possibly benefit? Is it even smart to go there with with a teenager? So I've, I've done it with three kids. And different reasons for for all three, but you know, so one was a pain issue, one was OCD like behavior with ruminative thoughts, and I forget what the third one was for. Actually, um, it it didn't it didn't work as well as we'd hoped to for any of them. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason why number one they couldn't they couldn't buy in to the same degree because they don't have a fully functional nervous system. Like they don't know why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Their brains are still growing. They, none of them had gone through puberty yet. So there wasn't even the stabilizing point of getting like your reproductive drives kind of set. Yeah. Even before that, they're like having the conversations with their parents and, and there was, there was a fundamental connection I think between all of them was that dad was absent and they didn't play. 
right? So the absence of rough and tumble play with prefrontal cortical development is a huge issue, I think, in, in, young, in young boys and even young females. Like they both juvenile female and male rats love to play. Like they will always ask to rough and tumble play when you allow them to go into an open arena. As long as they feel safe, they will engage in that. And so part of the reason I think there's a huge issue with, you know, adolescents in general right now is that there's such a push for academic and scholastic and athletic achievement that kids are not really allowed to be kids, kids. right? And so you don't see parents tossing their kids up in the air. You don't see them wrestling in the dirt. You don't see them really doing these things that really drive development of the prefrontal cortex to inhibit irrational or um, inappropriate behaviors in a certain context and to kind of map onto context-dependent behaviors. The other problem is really if you don't if you don't have someone to push boundaries with physically, mm-hmm. then you don't have a gauge for how to behave with other people your size. So like, for example, like when me and my son wrestle, if he hits me too hard, okay. But I can tell him, hey, buddy, look, daddy's different. But if you were to hit a friend like that, they're not going to want to play with you anymore. Yeah. And so they almost get this lesson in um, developmental morality of if you want to play with other kids, you have to have this reciprocal behavior where you treat them as if you know you would want to be treated. Right? It's right. a classic golden rule. But if they don't have someone to push, they don't have someone to kind of pinch and pull hair and just hit and kind of figure out what is the extent of how I can treat mm-hmm. an individual that loves me unconditionally? And then how do I actually map that onto other people? And then you get this social cohesion, right? The kids will start to play together. They start to get friends. They start to develop all these things that then grow into the peer phase where now they're not stuck with peers that are just trying to push them into whatever because they know who they are kind of fundamentally mm-hmm. as a boundaried person and they can understand how to set physical boundaries. Now they can start to understand how to set emotional boundaries. And that is all without the parental insight, mm-hmm. right? So parents are kind of like a, a, you know, a floater at that point, right? They're really pushing to what their peers are doing, what their, um, crushes are doing right so they're all doing things in service of their peer group and if they have a solid sense of self which is formulated out of embodied physical movement then they will actually embody that better in an external setting so you know again the question being about ketamine adolescence i think it has its place you know i think it can be used but if you're not going after the fundamental reasons for why the brain is not developing in the way that it should I think you're missing most of the yeah. picture. Well, it's inter- and you know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever heard that articulated in that way before. And it's a little bit a piece of how parents are not prepared to be parents. And in some ways, we shouldn't need to be prepared. It should be instinctual. It should be the way that we are. But I think that the world that we're in is so artificial now. Yeah. I mean, that our, if we're not our instincts are kind of taken advantage of. I mean, we don't, yeah. we don't have the same ones. And again it's not even the parents fault, right? It's just, we do what we were told growing up. And so that's how we we emulate our parents. And sometimes our parents didn't do that. You know, if we don't know that we're supposed to be loving and disciplinary at the same time, and that that means the same thing, then we're not going to exploit the same kind of patterns in the same fashion. You know, if we're told that our kids need to be talking by two and they'd be walking by 12 months and, all these different milestones. The milestones. Yeah. And, and then they start to freak out or <laughs> use medications to, to kind of change. Like, you know, if a kid is not reading and writing by five, 
they'll read and write by eight. Yeah. Like it's not that big of a deal, right? Yeah. They're not pushing academic papers at 12 years old and it's okay. You know, mm-hmm. brain development goes until 25. Yeah. It's like if they're not in college by 17 or 18, like you didn't fail. If they're not playing professional sports, you didn't fail. You know, you don't want to pressure your kids to do something that is not going to be in their cards. Yeah. You know, um, I think this idea that kids can do anything and be anything, it's it's hurting. Yeah. Well, I mean, out of context, mm-hmm. because it puts a lot of pressure on kids. But we're off topic on ketamine right now. So the ketamine therapy. And I think, you know, part of the reason why ketamine therapy would be tricky with a kid is because when you have an adult coming to you for ketamine therapy, that adult is aware and knows that there are patterns that they need to get to that. Like there's a, there's a maturity of thought of approach mm-hmm. that a child most likely won't have. Yeah. It doesn't mean all, no children, child will, but most kids, they do what they do because they do what they do. Yeah. And they're not particularly interested in well, and, and from understanding a, why. From the therapist side, like, again, kids are very easy to recognize behaviors and realize, okay, these behaviors are coming from X, Y, and Z. Right. Whereas adults, we have those secondary and tertiary defenses that kind of pop up, and, and we can we can be very elusive as mm-hmm. to the core motivations um, behind them. I mean, but, you know, for these two kids, at least the ones that I can remember, <laughs> obviously that kid wanted to be out of pain and playing yeah. soccer again. Yeah. Maybe. There was some, there was some yeah, weird stuff knows? going on with that one. Yeah. But the other one, I mean, he didn't want to be thinking what he was thinking at all, right? No. So he definitely knew, I don't want this going on. Um, and then during the infusion, like, he didn't have the thought. So there was definitely a repression of that circuit that was going. But again, there was something far deeper going on with, with, with why he was doing that in the first place. And it came from a self-worth position. Really? Wow. That's heartbreaking. All right. So... Ketamine practitioners, how do people how do people access this? If this is something that people want to explore for themselves, what's your advice to them? Is I there mean, a- there there are ketamine clinics kind of popping up all over the place. I mean, I'd say the due diligence is going to go in, going and meeting with whoever the provider is going to be, kind of figuring out where their philosophical bent is, if they have a philosophical kind of underpinning of what they're doing, if they have an understanding of the neurobiology behind it, right? There's it's not like they have to be an expert in what it's doing, but they should be very well versed in what to expect for your condition, whatever you're seeking the help for. Um, you know, if they're going to be in the room, if their nurse is going to be in the room, if they're going to be running blood pressures and vitals and stuff, very distracting. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that's a time for, you know, conversation at a time, but you just need to know what to expect and you need to know <laughs> what you want to get out of it mm-hmm. and if they can't tell you the probability of getting what you want from a series of infusions or whatever it might be you're probably in the wrong place right yeah. and i would think that relatability to the individual just on a human level yeah would be really important yeah i mean for example like i we i probably don't talk about ketamine with my clients until we're maybe two or three follow-ups in yeah. right i'll maybe mention that we do it in the first appointment never pushy, never even really kind of walk through what I think is happening with them because we haven't built that trust yet. Yeah. And so whenever I mention it again, six or nine months into our relationship, they're like, yeah, you know, I think I'm ready to actually talk about that or send me the blogs that you've written about it or send me mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z, um, you know, about the, uh, the ketamine. So it is certainly something that I would have a hard time, even if I was looking for the therapy, finding a place to go. 
um, which is unfortunate, but you know, looking for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is probably the three buzzwords that you want to use together. So okay, ketamine-assisted ketamine psychotherapy. Okay. Because that kind of, it kind of involves the understanding that you're going to be with a therapist or counselor as you have the experience and is going to help you either walk through it during or at least after. Yeah. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. All right. I think we covered a lot of ground. Any other quick fires? Any other quick fires? I think we're good. So, Caleb, where can people find you, learn more about you? I know you now have a community. You've got a blog. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, so we've got, I guess, the, the most the most information we have is in our Patreon. And so that's where everything that I make from my members as far as video content and blogs and newsletters and all that will be on that website. I think it's there's, there's two different options for subscriptions. One's a a lesser like $10 and one's $14 or something like that. Um, it is Dazine Health. So that is the correct pronunciation. Not... And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. <coughs> Dazine. Yes. Um, obviously, we've got our Instagram, which is you know, at Dazine Health. Um, we do our little shorts and stuff there, kind of teasers into what we do on on Patreon and, and our, for our normal clients. Um, we've got a kind of monthly newsletter that goes out of just things that are kind of entering what I call my design. So just things that I've been utilizing or have found uh, to be helpful for my other clients. And that's through Substack. Okay. Um, we'll have all these links probably available for. for yeah. We'll put all the links into the show yeah. notes. And then, uh, and just my website, you know, www.designhealth.org. Uh, yeah. Not a whole lot of stuff there, but you know, it's, it's a good point of reference to find all the links to the other places. Yeah. I mean, your Instagram's great because it's a great gateway to understanding whether someone's like, oh, I want to know more and joining the Patreon Patreon community or not. So, it's a good gateway joke. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you for always. your time. Appreciate it's you coming awesome. by. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly or if you'd like to leave any comments or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, just answered a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.